grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God comes to us today in, with, and under the words of the fifth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. In this section, the ancient teacher of wisdom addresses the question of wealth, and in particular, the relationship between wealth and happiness. Now, I suspect you already know what he's going to say that money can't buy you happiness. Indeed, that is, in fact, what he does say, more or less. In verse 10, he says that the person who loves money will not be satisfied by it. And he gives a good reason for thinking that way in the next sentence, when he says, as your wealth increases, so the demands upon you increase. Actually, the Hebrew says it a little more colorfully, as your goods increase, those who eat it increase. In other words, everybody's gonna want a piece of your pie. But that's not the only problem he identifies. In the verses that follow, he observes several more reasons that the person who loves money will not be satisfied by it. He says that wealth robs you of sleep because you lie awake at night fretting over how to hold on to it. That the love of money often causes a person to hoard it to such an extent that he makes himself miserable. And that you can't depend upon wealth because it's often lost through bad business decisions or poor investments, so that in the end you have nothing to leave your children. And finally, he plays his trump card. It's all for nothing anyway, because you can't take it with you. Well, you've heard all this before. And depending upon your personal disposition, you may or may not be inclined to believe it. You may think, well, that's the kind of problem I'd like to have. Or even that if money's bad for you, so what? I like to live dangerously. Or if you're the more reflective type, you may think that this kind of overly simplistic moralizing is just the sort of thing that people who don't have money say in order to make themselves feel better about their situation in life. Well, we could spend a lot of time debating all this moralizing about the love of money or whether it's better to be miserably rich or happily poor. Or we could all dismiss it as just a kind of pious platitude that it's out of touch with the economic realities of the modern world. But if we did either of those things, we would be missing something quite a bit more important in this text. It slips in quietly uh, as a preamble to the catalog of reasons that the ancient wise man gives for not loving money. And it's more important than anything else that he says. It stands at the beginning of verse 12, 
where the ESV gives us a very standard translation. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. As translations go, that's okay. There's nothing really wrong with it. But I suspect, however, that it's just a little bit misleading because the phrase grievous evil tends to draw us into a moralizing way of thinking. And that is not really what the ancient wise man has in mind here. Let me offer an alternative. I'll give it a try. I would read this phrase like this. I have noticed that the cosmos is wretchedly sick. Well, that's a bit different. Why would I be inclined to read it that way? To answer that question, we have to back up a bit and think about the kind of literature that we're reading here. The Old Testament writers had two rather different ways of approaching their theological task. The most common way of framing the revelation of, of God in the Old Testament is to speak about the way that God has revealed himself and his will in, with, and under the deeds of history. This interpretation of God's work through history, through his works in history, is what we commonly refer to as the prophetic tradition. And it encompasses not only the prophets themselves, but also it provides the theological framework for what we think of as historical books, really the former prophets. And even much of the Pentateuch falls into this category, the five books of Moses. Indeed, it is because Moses proclaimed how God was at work redeeming his people Israel through the events of their history that Deuteronomy 34 speaks of Moses as the prototype, even the quintessential prophet. But our text is not a part of that majority prophetic tradition. Our text belongs to the other way that Old Testament writers frame the revelation of God. That other way of framing the revelation of God is to speak about the way that God has revealed himself and his will in, with, and under the order that God built into creation or into the cosmos when he created it. This interpretation of God's revelation through the order that he built into the cosmos is what we sometimes refer to as the wisdom tradition. It's called wisdom because it asserts that the wise person is the one who understands the order that God built into creation and his place in that order and how to live according to that order. Wisdom theology often sounds moralizing, as it does in our text today. But wisdom theology is not about morality per se. It's about rightness and the way that one can find God's order in a disordered world. And it's because our text 
speaks from that perspective of the wisdom tradition that the words of the ancient wise man about the unrightness of the world stand out as so important when he says, I have noticed that the cosmos is wretchedly sick. You see, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the ancient wise man hammers this one point over and over and over again. Something is really wrong here. It's as if he were hanging a cosmic out-of-order sign on the whole universe. Things in the real world just don't work the way God intended them to. Read in this way, all the talk about the problems of wealth that we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 do not constitute pious moralizing about why you should not love money. Rather, the teacher of wisdom is using wealth as a kind of case study to show that the world is really messed up, or as the wise man says, wretchedly sick. As if to underscore the importance of this point, he repeats it again at the end of his catalog of reasons. In verse 16, he says, this is also an example of the wretched sickness. In the same way that a person comes, so shall he go. So what does it benefit him who strives against the wind? Not an altogether happy thought. So, what does the wise man do? If the universe is disordered, messed up, wretchedly sick, how can the wise man live his life according to the order that God intended creation to have? There are two answers to that question. One for the short term and another for the long term. The short-term answer is given by the ancient wisdom teacher at the end of our text. The wise man, he says, acknowledges that the world does not always work as God intended it to work and embraces whatever comes from God's hand because it is from God's hand. It is his gift. And with his gift, he will give the power of contentment and even joy to those who receive all things as if from him. The long-term answer is only hinted at in the last sentence of our text. The ancient teacher of wisdom writes of the wise person, surely he will not remember much about the days of his life for God will keep him busy with the joy in his heart. In the immediate short-term context, this undoubtedly means that whoever accepts whatever comes from God's hand as his gift will find so great a joy in his contentment and such happiness in his life that he simply won't have time to think about much of anything else. But there is also in these words a hint, 
maybe more than a hint, a foreshadowing of the long-term answer as well. Yes, this world is broken. It is disordered. It is wretchedly sick. And there is nothing that any of us, not even the wisest among us, can do about it. So what is the long-term answer? Answering a different question, Jesus answered this one in the gospel lesson for today when he says, for man it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible for God. God who created this wretchedly sick world has not abandoned it. He is about the business of fixing its brokenness, of reordering it once again so that it corresponds to his will, of healing its desperate sickness. And Jesus should know. Jesus, as St. Paul tells us, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Through him, the book of Proverbs says, God properly ordered the world at its beginning. Through him, God is fixing its brokenness, reordering its disorder, healing its desperate sickness, making creation new again. And by him, you are brought into this new creation so that now and forever, it is said of you in Jesus, surely you will not remember much about the days of your life, for God will keep you busy with the joy in your heart. This is God's gift to you, now and forever, in Jesus' name, amen.